Hey everybody, it's Charles Height here. Um, just want to welcome y'all to the Rabbit Hole Show. So we have episode 66 with Patrick Beasley, and he's with uh, Champagne Problems, a podcast dealing with addiction here uh, locally in Charlotte, also with Sonic um, uh, Counseling. Uh, but just wanted to give y'all a little heads up. We had a little mic issues, uh, but we decided to roll with the recording just because the content was uh, really well. And good conversation. Just want to give you all a heads up. But uh, episode 66 here with Patrick Beasley. And hope you all enjoy. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the Rabbit Hole Show. Episode 66. Um, always, we all have a story. We all have struggles. And the good news is you're not alone. This week, got a special guest. Um, we've actually shared a guest, um, but uh, Patrick Beasley from Champagne Problems, Sign of Counseling. Uh, so welcome. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah. Um, I guess got introduced to you by Stephen Hazel, who was a guest somewhere in the 40s episode, and then... Um, Reintroduced, yeah. connected by Tammy, a couple a couple months ago. So, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah, you you've gone through a lot, and uh, yeah, it wasn't easy to get to where you're at. <laughs> it feels like it was. Yeah, yeah, had a lot of help. That's for sure. Oh yeah, for me it was a. Uh, the Lord smacked me pretty hard and uh, waking up off life support. Yep. That was my wake up call I needed because I don't. I mean, the treatment centers weren't doing it for me. Yeah, yeah, I was right there. I think if I uh, probably would have gone another week or two, I would have been in the same position. Yeah, and, um, and that's the reason I like um, you know doing this podcast because I got that second chance, and a lot of people I know. Um, didn't make it didn't get that second chance and I don't know why but uh, so it's not just for me but it's for those who um, wish they could have been sitting in this position if they were able to win the battle um, with either mental health addiction whatever it is but just creating awareness so people know they're not alone just in an everyday life because I mean, it's called life for a reason. It's not meant to be easy, and you're not supposed to do it alone. You, know, you need community. But as I always say, you can have bad community, good community, and that community can lift you up or bring you down. Just yeah. you know, depends your mindset and the people you're around. So for sure, yeah. When you're talking about like you know having second chances, it reminded me of a buddy of mine like send me an email or wrote me a letter or something in treatment. When I was in treatment for the last time, saying like, "Dude, you don't—you're not a cat. You know, you don't have nine lives." And it really made me kind of reflect on all the near-death experiences that I had during my active addiction, and how blessed I am to uh, to still be alive and to have that that last chance, which ended up turning into you know sustained recovery. Um, and how just like you know one little thing could have gone differently in all these different scenarios and it would have never turned out you know 
like it was. Yeah, you just, um, yeah, when you're in the addiction, it's, you got your blinders on and you think you're invincible. And, yeah. Uh, Not going to happen to me. <laughs> no, you know? until it does. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, I mean, I'm definitely on my ninth life. You know, yeah, next yeah, time something, yeah, next time something happens, it's going to be, you know, my final life. But, and that's why I'm living this way now, because when it is my time, I want to go out in a way that is normal, I want to say. Because um, addiction shouldn't be normal, but it is, especially well, with all this fentanyl. And it's really scary. I mean, I'm glad that that stuff wasn't around when, when I was in active addiction. Um, I feel like that's a major point of grace right there. Because I don't, I, I, the way that, that I used um, the good chance that I would have made it, that's for sure. Yeah. At the rescue mission, a lot of the guys that I'm working with, dealing with, poured into, um, you know, uh, like one of them even told me that he knows someone that died from um, weed that was laced with fentanyl. So, I mean, it's not just in your heroin, you know, being cut in your coke, man. It's even in your weed. Um, man, no, I mean, just with all these new research, all these new experimental chemicals that they're using and they're, you know, all the Adderall now, a lot of it on the streets, just straight meth pills, all the Xanax are fake and they got Trank in them or they got, you know, Clam or whatever the newest research chemical is. It's just, just not really, really scary. Yeah. That's why I'm like, I'm glad, blessed to be sitting here saying it's not worth yeah. it, but that's easier said than done when you're in the addiction. Oh, yeah. You don't, you don't think that one hit, that one line, whatever is going to happen to you. No, I remember, you know, even growing up, like the, the I'll nevers, you know, we lose, the, we lose sight of those pretty quickly. Um, I remember I used to break my parents' cigarettes in half when I was a kid because I wanted to quit smoking. I actually won a, um, I think we were in fourth, third or fourth grade. We had, uh, they had like a, a, a painting contest or drawing contest where who's gonna, they had everybody draw a poster, a, a say no to smoking poster. And, uh, and I was not a good artist. I don't know how I won the thing, but I ended up winning. I had like the best one. <laughs> and they, uh, you're passionate prob- about probably, yeah, probably it was that. It was probably like really dark, you know, <laughs> like very like, morbid. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah, yeah, really dark and, and, and vibrant. <laughs> um, but it, uh, it, we, I ended up winning the contest somehow, and they put it on display at the Mint Museum. Are you <laughs> serious? Yeah, it wasn't like down the hallway. No, no, but it was like it wasn't like on its own. It Correct. Was like, yeah. Here's the hallway. But I mean, it, 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 it you know, posters. But I think it was an exhibit from like I guess they picked one from every school, and they had all the schools do it. Um, I remember that. And then I was like, you know, two years later, I'm like one of the first kids in my class to smoke a cigarette. <laughs> that went out the window real quick. Yeah. Do you remember looking back, thinking, I mean, you've had a lot of time to reflect. What caused you from going to winning the no smoking 
artist competition to yeah 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 I mean I I've, I've I have my kind of Genesis story um, pretty ironed out um, and it and it it started my my addictive tendencies started way before any substances came into play and I know a lot of people say that but um, so I, I I get I mean mine started as far back as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, now I remember when I was like, I, don't know, I was six, six or seven is when I can remember like, like sadness kind of creeping in for the first time. I remember, um, you know, both of my parents, um, like my dad has two brothers own a restaurant and lunch shop here in Charlotte called Arthur's, and they've been in business. And if you're from Charlotte, that's a yeah, that's an OG spot. Yeah, they've been in this last year. I think was their fiftieth year in business, and um, so like our family culture revolved around drinking, mm-hmm. um, and it was a very kind of work hard, play hard mentality. Um, but I never. It was weird. People tell me this all the time that they can't believe how well my family gets along for being in a family business together for as long as they have been, and and, and it's and it's true. Like they do, they get along very well. Um, we always have like family birthdays and we celebrate things together, and I, that's like my um, kind of portrait of alcohol use growing up it was never scary I never saw like a fight I never felt like I was abused or neglected or never saw anything like crazy I never saw mm-hmm. anybody throw anything or scream or it was all just it looked like a lot of fun um and uh I remember, like, you know, being in the restaurant business, my dad worked a lot, so he was he was gone um, a lot, and, and, you know, my mom struggled with, with her, you know, own alcohol addiction, um, but it was, you know, now I'm a, I'm a counselor now, so I know, like, the psychology behind it, and I've studied attachment theory, and I know how, you know, not being emotionally present for a child can have an impact, and... And, um, you know, they, they didn't know any better. And I always felt like I was loved. But when you have parents that are, you know, working and drinking um, and me being an only child, I didn't have really anywhere else to turn or anybody to kind of be with. So I remember spending a lot of time alone when I was a kid. That's hard as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know what was going on. I didn't like I didn't know I was sad. You know what I mean? Until until I got older and kind of reflect on a lot of the stuff, I didn't know what was going on. But you know, I was I was primed for for addiction. Um, just I mean, long lines on both sides of my family. Lots of alcohol abuse um, and use and misuse and addiction. And um, but like I, I remember, and I I can't pinpoint the shift, but. It, kind of a gradual one and probably a lot of it had to do with fear around under school and like kindergarten mm-hmm. um i was a, a young i was one of the youngest kids in my class and i was really short really small mm-hmm. um, compared to everybody else and at the time you know when i went to kindergarten um or first grade right in the first like three grades is when my parents kind of relationship started to struggle and me being an only child it, feeling a little bit less than in that environment in school um, coupled with the 
I don't know, chaos is the right word, but but um, kind of insecurity around my parents' relationship, and I could tell intuitively that there was something going on there that wasn't normal, and um, and then that led up to like right when I was in seventh grade, and um, it, I, it, there was you know some financial struggles, and I was going to a private school in Country Day, and um, and I know that you know obviously looking back on it now that that was a a major financial you know, commitment for my family and I think that they sacrificed a lot in order to keep me there at that school so we went from moving right around like first or second grade we went went from like living in this big house to living in an apartment like right behind country day and that again poured on more not good enough less than I'm mean, you know all these kids especially being at country day with people who yeah. have mega mansions driving around Range Rovers and you know and and I'm walking home from school and it's you know I felt it and didn't know that I was feeling it and what was happening was that you know my my mental emotional health was was taking a toll and uh, I was just being primed for something to come in to help me cope with that and um and, and, and it just kind of felt like clockwork. I, I remember I was, and I always tell this story now because it, it was the first time that I found a way to change the way that I felt. So I was, um, I was probably seven or eight. I mean, just moved into these apartments right behind Country Day, Colony Road. And, mm-hmm. um, and there was a, a, like a swimming pool facility at the thing and uh, at the apartments and it was a small place and I was up there swimming and there wasn't anybody in the pool and I don't think anybody was around I don't even know if my parents knew that I was up there and uh, and I was climbing out of the pool and um, as I was pulling myself out of the pool I felt the pool jet hit me um, and I'm um, like that feels good and uh, and I stayed there long enough and uh, and I had my first orgasm seven years old, mm. and uh, and that was the first time that I found something that, to escape the pain. To, yeah, to change really it just changed the way that I felt yeah. like immediately, and you know, not to mention that that's like the best feeling in the world. Yeah, and I've never <laughs> felt it before, so obviously it was. I want to do this all the yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just like any other drug. So you know, I did it. I'm like, and and. And I was so young that I didn't know what it was. I didn't know, like, you know, there was no shame attached to it because I didn't know what sex was. Yeah. I didn't know. Nobody had told me, like, don't, you know, don't do that. Don't masturbate. Like, mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're going to go to hell. And um, so I, did, I didn't know. There, there was no wrongdoing. There, there was no negative emotion attached to it at all. So there was no conflict. So it was like all summer I'm in the pool and I'm doing this thing. I'm figuring out other ways to do it. And I'm not really telling anybody about it. And it's like my own little secret. But I'm like, you know. And what I didn't know is that like that's a massive dopamine hit. Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, and to have that happen. At a young age. Yeah, and be able to do it whenever I wanted. It was just, I mean, it, it literally just primed my brain for what was to come. Mm-hmm. Um and again, like, you know, I did that and and that's like ingrained in me. And then, you know, my parents my parents kinda they, they got separated right probably fourth or fifth grade. 
and this is you know a year or so after that happened um or that was kind of introduced in my life and then i kind of became obsessed with basketball i got i was a go yeah i was a really i was a pretty good basketball player and um and it was something that that I developed that I got a lot of attention around too. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, my game was really flashy. I kind of fed off that. You know, people were excited about the way that I played. People liked watching me play, and you know, I'd throw a behind the back pass, and I'd get a couple oohs and ahs. And it's like now every like pass, I got, yeah, yeah, now every pass I got to throw behind my back. You know, the coaches didn't like that very much, and uh, fans what they want. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. <laughs> Get my ass on the bench. That's what that's what happened with that. But, um, but I became obsessed with basketball, and and when my parents, you know, when they got divorced, my mom, where my mom ended up moving right behind the Harris Y, so that became my kind of home away from home and my respite. Uh, you know, I was there like every single day after school. Uh, you still out country days? Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, but I guess like. Back up about a year, like right before they got they they split and my mom moved into that place behind the Y. I was already obsessed with basketball, and there was a uh, there was a, a place called King's Drug. It was a drugstore at the it's where the Ben and Jerry's is, right? It's like where Barrington's is right now, mm-hmm. it, it, behind Country Day, like yeah. across from Foxcroft. Yeah. Bricks Pizza, yeah, 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 where Blockbuster used to be. Yeah, it might be where Bricks is. I don't it, no, it's. I think it's on the front. It's on the front side. So there used to be a drugstore there called King's Drugs, and they had a little restaurant in the back. And we, I used to, I was in that place every day. And one day I go in there. It's like 1990. I'm like eight years old, and there's about there's a box of 1990 NBA hoops basketball courts behind the counter. They're like a dollar a pack. Jordan's in his prime. It's like David Robinson's like second year, and I and I'm like gung-ho about basketball. Mm-hmm. So I'm in there with my daddy. I'm like, hey, can I get a pack of those cards? And I didn't know really what it was all about um, at that point. But I quickly figured out that you could buy a pack of these cards for a dollar. And there was a chance that I was going to get a Michael Jordan or a David Robinson card in there that was worth $5. Yeah. You know, and then, like, I'm going to the card stores and I'm, I'm figuring this out. And it's what I don't know. Obviously, what my parents don't know is, like, I'm neurologically I'm being introduced to scratch off tickets. Yep. You know, it's like I buy this thing for a buck, I rip it open and there's five bucks inside or there's nothing. You know, so very quickly my little my little dopamine theme brain is just all over this. And and nobody knows what's going on. Because I mean the parents are like, oh what can I collecting basketball cards? And um so there was this there was this card store um at Cotswold Mall, right down the street from here. Yeah, right down the street called All Stars. And uh, this poor guy worked in there. Um, it, it, I think he had some mental health struggles or something, mm-hmm. but he owned the card store. And um and within like six months of me discovering basketball cards, me and this other kid that, that I went to country day with, um, we start autographing basketball cards. Like we figured out how to do, there was a price guide, price magazine. Mm-hmm. 
had all the sometimes it would have some of like the good players like you know auto, they would show you what their autograph yeah. was like and we we got really good at it and we started autographing basketball cards and we made up a story about how my buddy's dad worked for the Hornets and, which is like well I mean yeah I mean who's gonna think that some like ten year old kid is gonna come into your card shop with a bunch of fraudulent cards with some and lie about um, this like really well. <laughs> story about yeah i mean we would i mean but it, it was we'd come in with us it got to the point where we would come in with a stack of autograph fake autograph cards and he would look through them and he'd sit there with his calculator and he would price them out what he was gonna and he'd say okay and he'd hold he'd turn the calculator up he didn't see it he like barely talked and it would have like $477 on the calculator. And he would have boxes of unopened cards with like a price tag on them. Like, Did he like get out a magnifying glass and examine nah, it? He no, just, no, 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 no. This was before, this was mean, like 1990. Yeah, when, 1991. There was no authentication. There was no card grading. Like that stuff didn't exist. So like, you know, he was just kind of taking our work and we were, re- I was really good. I mean, I can still do Jordan's autograph. Like, I'm going to have to get you to do that. <laughs> but I just wonder how many, how many, uh, well, that's what I said. Like, like I, I know, and I've shared this story a bunch publicly and like, I, there are, you got a statue of limitations. Here. There's a lot of people in Charlotte that probably have autographs. That's what I'm saying. Like how many houses in their like safety deposit boxes that they bought at All-Star cards that for thousands of dollars in the early 90s yeah and now they're or they got authentic and they're like yeah this is fake um but it got to the point where i had so many basketball cards that i had gotten through because we'd go in there and we'd end up with you know five or ten boxes that we would just rip open I mean, it's a dollar. You're making four hundred. Yeah, exactly. For literally, yeah. So I just have this. I I have this huge collection, and then one day, like this, is probably two years later, um, for some reason, the Charlotte Observer was doing something on like entrepreneurship. Oh my! God. Yeah, and I'm in the card store that day, and I guess the guy that owned the card store was like, "Hey, like, you need to talk to this kid." Like, da 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 da. And fast forward, um, uh, there's a picture of me on the front of the business page. The oh, so you the keep the story going. I mean, you got to. Yeah, no, but I, they didn't. They didn't do it. They didn't say anything about the autograph. Okay, okay. They just talked about me like having this huge card collection, which is very entrepreneurial of you to do. Yeah, that. yeah. And illegal. I'm like wheeling and dealing, and, and <laughs> yeah, it was not not good. Um, so you have a lot of cash. No, 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 no. No, I'm saying like, zero cash. But I'm saying the guy is at this point. The guy is buying these cards from you. Well, he's trading them. We're we're. Oh, you're trading he's them. He's giving us store credit, and we're oh. just ripping it open. Because I was going to ask, did your parents yeah. ever see? Okay, so no, we're, we're, we're ripping them open and walking out of there with a bunch of bunch of worthless cards. Um, or we would, you know, we open the boxes and we'd get some good ones, and then we trade them back to them for more, just like a casino. Yeah, like you know. You make a bunch of money in the casino. Mm-hmm. What do you do? You give it back until you broke. And and like yeah. so, we're doing this, and um, and I'm selling them at school, and 
it is worse. We, my dad gave us like a deli case at Arthur's at one point. Yeah, we freaking were selling cards out of there. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was a mess. But, uh, but anyway, so like that kind of dries up and that brings me up to like sixth grade, sixth, seventh grade. And by this time, my parents were divorced. Like, they were given separately. Um, you know, and substances started to get introduced. Sixth and, grade, you said? Yeah, I think it was like the song between sixth and seventh grades when I smoked my first cigarette, you know, like back in the woods behind somebody's house. Mm-hmm. And, um, where they, you know, the couple of people that were a year or two older than us that lived in the neighborhood. And then, then it kind of moved into, um, you know, I remember seventh, sometime during seventh grade, it was like me and like four or five of my other buddies. And there was one house that we always used to go to and hang out in. It was a huge house. And um, my parents didn't know what was going on. We're up in the playroom above the garage. And there was a bunch of beer in the fridge in the garage that nobody probably ever drank. Mm-hmm. Been there forever. And um, and all uh, most of my friends were already partaking in, in the alcohol consumption. And I was like, kind of, I think I was out of our little friend group, I was like the last one to partake. Because mm. I was scared. Yeah. Like, I mean, even that point in my life, like, I was still like, full of fear. Um, scared to death to get caught. It wasn't about, you know, me ruining my life. It was about what's going to happen about the consequences if I get caught. Yeah. You know, I was more worried about that. And, um, but, you know, one night I decided to freaking, and there was no, like, overt peer pressure. They weren't like, oh, so they come on, man, drink, drink, drink. Um, but I mean, I, I felt that like FOMO, you know, I felt like I was missing out. Yep. And I like see all them having fun. So I remember I cracked one and, you know, and the next thing it was like, you know, I'm just doing what they're doing and we're having fun. No negative consequences. We're like, they're playing basketball, going to the pool. So like everything's totally cool. Yeah. We're drinking like two or three beers and we're just like, Hammered. Yeah, I mean, at that age. It yeah, nobody much. knows what's going on. I mean, yeah. we're, we're doing it every weekend, and then during the summer, we're doing it pretty much all the time. And we found creative ways to get beer, you know, and oh, yeah. um, liquor or whatever. And um, we kind of just, like, eased into it. And, um, and then, you know, and then the weed came. And But what really changed the game was the summer between my freshman my eighth grade year freshman year my dad had had knee surgery and there was a guy over at my house that was a couple years older than me my dad was at work and I'll never forget it I was laying on the couch um flipping through the channels on the TV it was like a Saturday afternoon and I was drinking an old English 40 and um I, I was almost done with it I was a little buzzed and the guy comes in to the living room with a bottle of, bottle of Percocets. And he's like, yo, dude, have you ever had one of these? And I was like, nah, and I wouldn't, probably never would have done it if I hadn't already been drinking. Correct. So he hands me two of them, I pop them in my mouth, and like 30 minutes later, and I'll, I'll, I'll always remember this. I remember the remote dropping out of my hand and falling on my chest, and then my hands like dropped down. And um, 
Parks up kicked in and the uh, TV stopped on QVC and there was a guy selling Beanie Babies. And I remember laying there watching this dude sell Beanie Babies for like three hours. And I remember vividly thinking to myself that I didn't want to move my hands to pick up the remote to change the channel on the TV because I didn't want it to break. The way that I thought I didn't want to yeah. I felt so good. I didn't want anything to change. I was like, I want to feel like this for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what I kind of set out to do. And, this and that was, was like freshman. Yeah, this was like right before I started high school. So, um, you know, and again, there was no shame. I mean, yeah, part of me was like, yeah, I probably shouldn't be doing this, but I was not educated on opioids at all. This was like the, you know, I, I didn't know the difference between these things and freaking Tylenol. Like, I knew yeah. it was a prescription medication, but I didn't know yeah. what, what it was other than the fact that it made me feel great. And you liked it. Yeah, and that they were in every medicine cabinet everywhere because this was like 1996. It was before the opioid epidemic, yep. before the throw all your pills away campaign. So mm-hmm. every cabinet was filled with So I started eating the damn things like every day. And like, I didn't steal, you know, other than, other than the fraudulent autographs. Um, like I, I, would, I would never steal anything from anybody before that. Um, and it got, you know, within a month, like I'm raiding people's medicine cabinets in their houses and, um, you know, taking these pills. And, uh, it got to the point where, I mean, I think pretty much every day during high school, um, you know, I would take like a dose in the morning, dose around lunch, dose after school, and dose in the evening. Just to feel normal. Yeah, well, I mean, at this point, I didn't even know that I was like, like, would get sick when I stopped taking yeah. them because I always had them. Um, and uh, so my freshman year, freshman year in high school, um, I'm like super excited about basketball. I'm like, this is gonna be awesome. I've been waiting for this in my life. And, uh, and you know, that December, I get cut from the JV basketball team. Wow. And that's heartbreaking for Dude, it crushed me. So it was like any healthy bit of my identity stripped from me. It was now toast. Um. So I literally, and, and I, you know, and I have this newfound like way to make me feel great, mm-hmm. and it, and it was, it already had, had integrated in my life to the point where I didn't even feel the need to self-medicate. It was like I already, it, it, I was like already numb. Yeah. So I never really had the ability to process that, and and mm-hmm. like, and now being like I said, now I'm a counselor, like. I see how like destructive early onset of use can be um, with kids yeah. because of all the stress um, that comes along and all the all the potential growth that comes along with you know moving through adolescence and being able to figure out how to manage our emotions. But if you already establish a way of coping with those in an unhealthy manner mm-hmm. before like you even really get to the hard stuff, it's like, you don't even know what's happening. You've lost like, before you even started. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So that's kind of like what happened to me, and it was like a perfect storm. You know, I had all these unhealthy ways to you know, feel good, um, and now it just like, 
It's like, okay, well, now I have absolutely no reason not to just do do this stuff like all the time. Yeah. And like, go ham with it. And that's what I did. And I became the pretty druggy guy. Um, but one of the things that the opioids provided me was it, it, it almost made me manic. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I would, it washed away all my fear to where it kind of like turned me into, like I thought I was freaking Superman. Like I could walk into any, anywhere, anytime. Like, I, I, I was a pretty social guy to begin with. Yeah. And this just like, you know, now I'm like this social butterfly and I have like this perfect buzz. Mm-hmm. You're confident. Yeah. Not, you know, I can do anything and I can talk to anybody. And, you know, that's kind of how I skated through high school. I mean, I think I had a 2.0 when I graduated. And I ended up playing basketball the next three years, but it wasn't the same. I mean, my addiction had already taken root and I was using something every day. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was pretty much under the radar. So in high school, no one really suspected. No, I mean everybody knew that I was messed up. I was just, uh, I was, I was managing it well enough to where the, you know, I wasn't getting arrested. I wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't skipping school. Like I always knew how to, like, really, really kind of toe the toe the line to where you know, and if somebody would get suspicious or something would happen, I would always, you know, find a way to lie or, you know, manipulate my way out of it or, or I, you know, kind of pump the brakes for, for a couple of weeks and, yeah. you know, um, to get the, get the eyes off me. And then the second, you know, people weren't looking anymore, I'd go right back. I was gonna, you know how it is. Oh yeah. But yeah, man. So I, 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 I eat my way through high school and, um, and then snuck my way into NC State and went up there my freshman year. And uh, the guy that lived below me in the dorm worked at a pharmacy. So there you go. Yeah. And it was right when OxyContin came out. And uh, he walked into my dorm room on a Sunday afternoon. And because uh, we had like connected, uh, we were talking about weed in the cafeteria one day. Then that led to talking about pills, and then the next thing you know, he's walking in my dorm room and throws a sealed bottle of 40 milligram oxybuttons on my bed. That ain't for, 20, today. For, for $20. <laughs> and I didn't know what they were. And, um, you know, I, he just said, he said, these things are really strong, be careful. And, um, yeah, and then my tolerance just. Yeah, I mean, you already had a big tolerance. Yeah, yeah. That you had yeah, done I did. I did. And um, so I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit. Like, you know, I joined the fraternity my freshman year, and school was totally out the window. Like, I had cheated or, or, like, you know, barely went to class. That's how it was for me. It was um, a social. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a party. It was, yeah. Everything was a party. And, um, so I get strung out on oxys, and I'm doing a bunch of cocaine at this point, and, um, and uh, all the OxyConnects that I had, you know, they all get busted or disappeared or died, and um, and I'm left with this like massive oxy tolerance and um, and pretty nasty cocaine habit, and uh, and this this happened quickly, and um, and I think I was still in my freshman year, and uh, so I, I I get like really really sick. 
And um, and I'm freaking out because I can't find any pills. And I call this dude. He tells me to go to the methadone clinic. And I didn't know what that was. And um, so I look up. And this is internet barely. Yeah. It was out at this point. This was like 2000, 2001. I, well, I think I looked at the methadone clinic. I looked in the, in the white pages. And, uh, and I go to the methadone clinic in Raleigh. And they give me this juice. And it makes me feel better. And, you know. Uh, from there it's just like constant freaking cocaine use and up in my methadone dose mm-hmm. continuing to move further and further away from any type of uh, healthy anything and um, I ended up failing out of school I came back to Charlotte on a really high dose of methadone and you know, bad cocaine habit and, uh, and I'm drinking alcohol but all the time yeah. at this point too um, and uh, and a bunch of guys that I used to you know used to get high with in Charlotte they didn't go to college and all smoking black tar heroin and smoking crack and um, they had a bunch of crazy stuff in Charlotte and uh, I fell right into it and um, you know for the next like two or three years I'm back in town I'm Smoking crack all day long and totally, totally consumed. I mean, all I was was the disease of addiction. Mm -hmm. And then it goes back to what I said, your community. Like, if you would have been with other people, your path might have, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, there was never a real, I, I was so entrenched mm-hmm. and so in the grips and I know you can identify with this yeah. you've heard your story but just the there was no light at the end of the tunnel like there was no hope wasn't even a word correct you know like there was I never thought the I was so consumed that there was never a thought in my mind like hey I probably should stop yeah you know, there there was no there was no oh well this isn't gonna end well or hey like you should probably ask for help like I mean it was twenty four seven go but the only thing that I saw was how am I gonna get the next one yeah you know and and when you're in that state um for long enough like I mean the acute mental health stuff starts showing up pretty pretty quickly yeah and uh, and. And that, that's kind of what happened. And, uh, you know, I was in a, my family, they didn't know what to do with me at this point. Um, and, you know, I, um, this is like 2008. I went to treatment for the first time out in Monroe at First Step. Mm-hmm. And I was there for, 27, 26 days. I think I'm supposed to stay there for 28 and like manipulated in my, oh, I need to stay. My discharge date's on Sunday. I might as well yeah. be Friday. Yeah. You know, it's like, so I can be on, on for Christmas. Yeah. Like that was my, was my thing. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and man, I would have, I would have bet, if I had a million dollars, I would have bet it all that I was going to stay sober for the rest of my life when I walked out that door. Oh, yeah. And I mean, like, believed it with every fiber of my being. And I was, I was high two weeks later. And um, went on another, like, year and a half run. 
you know, to the point where when he got really ugly the last more than that last year, but like especially that last that year, year and a half, like I'd stay up for two days at a time smoking crack and my body would shut down. Yeah. You know, and I was the same way with you know your body, you can talk about this, you know, as a counselor, but your body's doesn't it's not built for that type of stress. <laughs> And you start getting psychosis and yeah, and that's yeah, that's what happens. So I was in a full blown like cocaine psychosis and that was in that for six months ish. Yeah, it's yeah, it, yeah. It was it was it was weird. And um, but my parents they didn't know what to do at this point. They didn't know how to intervene. And, um, and a guy that that had probably had twenty, a little over twenty years of AA at this point showed up. Where I, where I think I was in my, I was in my dad's apartment, condo. And I'd been up for a couple of days and I was like doing my last little bit of dope, probably false, you know, pass out. Uh-huh. And then he just not, I mean, it was like, you know, God's timing. Yeah. You know? It was, uh, it was definitely divinely inspired when this guy knocked on the door and, um, I mean, I literally like just done my last your last year, yeah. Your life, yeah. And, I, and I got up, went to the people, and saw him, and then sat back down. And uh, the voice said, "If you want to open the door, you're gonna die." I had like a staph infection in my leg. Like that was gross. I had open sores all over. Oh, yeah. I mean, was hygiene is the last thing you're worried about. Was nasty. And. Um, so I got up and I opened the door. He looked at me and was like, hey, you ready to go? And I just like, was like, yeah, yeah, I've been ready to go, you know? Yeah. I, I was just waiting for somebody to come save me. And, uh, did your family or your dad know this oh, man? Yeah. And yeah. Him okay. Because yeah. they knew I wasn't going to listen to them. No. They didn't know what to do. Even though they know what's best for us. I mean, this dude had been trying to get me to go to AA. So, so, okay, so it wasn't a stranger. No, I knew I've known him all life. And, um, so he shows up and I end up on a plane and I, you know, three days later. And, um, and that was June of 2011 and that was it. It was over. And I knew it. The second I woke up in detox, I knew. Um, so he took you to detox from there? No. So, so, so funny story, and I'll try to make this one quick, but... But we had, uh, my dad and I had a fishing trip planned for that weekend. It was his birthday. And of course, I'm like, I'm not going to treatment. Like, yeah, we oh gotta yeah. go on our fishing trip or I'm not going. Oh yeah, I know that. You know, mine, mine was a cell phone incident. Yeah, 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 I have to go on the fishing trip. It's so important, <laughs> you know. So against my dad's better judgment, he's like, all right, well. You go on Monday then. So You're strung like, out staff infection. Yeah, so <laughs> we go down to Charleston and uh, and I get hammered and he goes up to the uh, we were both drinking, but he goes up to the room to take a nap and uh, I steal his wallet in his car and we're running we're we're at uh, Folly Beach. Oh yeah. And I go and I had a bunch of dope on me but I didn't have any coke and I wanted I wanted to smoke some crack, so yep. I, I, I steal his car and his wallet, and I go driving him to Charleston, and uh, I'm on the James Island connector, and I'm hammered. I was about to say, you yeah. got to go across the connector. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, I 
slammed into a car going like 35 and stop. they were stopping at a stoplight I was trying to flag this dude down and I thought they have had some joke because <laughs> yeah, you're not worrying about yeah, other people I was like hanging out the window like yo <laughs> yo and um thinking Jesus is going to take the wheel yeah, and, get and all of just boom I slammed into the back of this Land Rover Discovery and um that's not my dope no <laughs> and I got like you know I had a bump I had at least an eight ball of, of tar on me in my pocket and I'm drunk and it's three o'clock in the afternoon yeah and I just told my dad's car who's napping yeah and uh, my cell phone blows up in the in the rack All, like most of the windows are shattered Air, airbags didn't go off for some reason it was weird because the car was like totally ripped in half and uh and um yeah, so I jump in the back seat, shove my dope into a pillowcase that was in the back of the car, jump out of the car acting like, oh my God. And, uh, Didn't see you there. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> and um, yeah, so anyway, the cops don't show up for an hour and a half. Oh, which and, is. And they, and, they, and they never breathalyzed me and never searched my dad's car. And uh, they wrote me a ticket for failure to yield. I told him that my my phone vibrated and fell off my lap, and I reached down to pick it up. And when I picked it up, I slammed it in their car. And um, yeah, and I ended up in I was in treatment the next day down in Fort Lauderdale. And um, and uh, yeah, I just you know one of a hundred other you know miracles and. Uh, you know, divine intervention that happened throughout my active addiction. And you, you don't know until you are on the other side. Oh, People yeah. look back and be like, yeah. oh, wow, that I should mean, have I happened. That should have happened. I tell these stories to people, you know, and, and that's, I could, we could sit here for the next three hours and I could tell you all the other times. So yeah. Like, you know, cars that I told you where I walked away and scratched or the times that I've gotten pulled over with, you know, $200 of crack in my mouth and drunk and, and yeah. give me a warning, you know, it's like, all these, I've had so many of those over the years. And um, so I get down to treatment and, um, and I'm, you know, I didn't, I didn't sleep for a month. Mid-month, I was still kind of detoxing. And, um, I remember my, my first real, like, good memory of treatment was when I, uh, they took me to, like, a, I think it was an NA meeting. Um, one of the first nights after I got out of detox, and I remember they called for a burning desire at the beginning of the meeting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and my hand, like, shot up. And, uh, and I just said, I'm Patrick, I'm an addict, and I need help. That was the first time you ever... Yeah, it was the first time in my life in 28 yeah. years on the planet that I ever asked anybody for help with anything. Mm-hmm. That's very hard. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was another, it was another freaking, like, it was a product of the spirit. Man. That's what I'm saying. But like, like, straight up. Like, I had absolutely nothing to do with that. Yeah. There wasn't anything inside of me that was like, you need to raise your hand, you know, and say yeah. this. It was just like, and it came out of my mouth. Yep. You know, and... When that happened, like these four dudes just like swarmed me and they were like, yeah, we got you, you're going to be fine. Like, here's our numbers. And one of the cool things the treatment center did um, that I went to, they allowed you to go out on pass with people from the community that had 
So it was like every day after treatment, like I'd go out with somebody and I was meeting new people and going to new meetings and you know, integrating into the recovery community. So by the time I got out of treatment, like I knew all these people, I knew what meetings to go to, I had yeah. a sponsor, I'd already gone through the steps with AA. Um, after I did that, I went, there was an NA meeting, you know, right next to the halfway house that I lived in. We met at 7 a.m. every morning. So I started going there every morning, and uh, that became my uh, home group. And I had two, I had like an AA home group and an NA mm-hmm. group, so I'd go, I kind of worked both both 12-step fellowships. And um, I got very, um, very interested in the, the transformative power of of 12-step recovery um, and I didn't drink the Kool-Aid I was still like very suspect um, it, you know I was very suspicious about like the cultish and kind of dogmatic approach mm-hmm. I, I was able to catch that and kind of say yeah there's some something some doesn't feel good about that yeah but there's also a bunch of bunch of stuff in here that feels really good. Good nuggets that, I can take that, and that, I need. That, that I I feel is true. Yeah. You know. Um. And I, I was so like when I woke up from my like first good night's sleep. You probably you hadn't slept. I mean, dude, I was fully alive. Like, I mean, I was a whole new man. Like, you know, they talk about having a spiritual awakening. And, like, that was that for me. Like, I was like... When you were zombie for 20 I, years. Yeah, I was like, I, this is... I'm so free right now. I don't have to put anything in my body. Like, I'm healed. Yeah. Like, physically, I felt great. Uh, that's the first time I felt like that. I don't know how. So I just... I became this freaking sponge for anything related to recovery. And my a, my first AA sponsor did a really good job of not like shoving shit down my throat and like answering all my questions. Letting you think and come yeah. to your own yeah, conclusion. Like he, he just held space for me. He wasn't one of those like, you know, do as I say, not as I like. Because I mean that can... Yeah, he was more of a therapist for mm-hmm. me than he was a sponsor almost, now that I look back on it. Um, but man, he was like, he was freaking awesome. And, uh, so I just, I, I, I didn't read a chapter in the book my entire life, I think, until I got sober. And I just became this freaking, I just started like reading this. I mean, I was, for my first like couple of years in sobriety, dude, I was reading like four or five hours a day. And the job that I had allowed me to do that I was sitting in like a valet. Um, shack like throwing keys out of a window so I would just sit there and read while I was doing it toss a key read yeah and I had a lot of down and then I started working in treatment and I had like nine months sober mm-hmm. I had a lot of downtime doing that too because I was like a, I was a tech and there were times when there were meetings or groups or, that's what I'm doing now yeah yeah and I had a lot of time to read um, and I had I had a lot of teachers um you know, in early recovery that were very wise and had a lot of life experience and a lot of 12-step experience and therapeutic experience um, that, you know, turned me on to all kinds of stuff. 
we're very quick to point out, like, you know, AA is not the only way. Right. Like, and there's a lot of other really cool stuff out there that can complement your recovery journey that may not be recovery related. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I got really lucky um, to have those types of teachers that opened me up to that kind of stuff. And I started, you know, I went on some meditation retreats and I was studying all kinds of stuff, a bunch of different, you know, philosophy and religion and different like types of spirituality or spiritual approaches. And it was cool because I was mapping all this stuff onto onto the recovery process at the same time. So you hadn't been able to do that before. Yeah, yeah. Stuff just started to click, started to make sense and and um you know, one one of the things that I've that I figured out really early was like there was just so much stuff about life that I had no clue about. Mm-hmm. You know? And I mean, that was kind of like the honesty part for me. Like, it was clear as day that I was like an alcoholic or an addict. Like, I knew that from the time I was 14. Yeah. Now, there was no, no question around admitting that for me. What I, like, really you know, needed to be honest about, which I was, and I came to terms with, was the fact that I didn't know anything about anything. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, I didn't know what was going on, um, how to live life, how to take direction, who to believe, who not to believe. Yep. You know, what did, what did a healthy life look like? Yeah. You know, I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know. You didn't know who you were. Yeah. Just like, I, didn't know right. I mean, yeah, I've, over these last two years, I've been figuring out who I am. Yeah. What, do, what do I like? What do I want to do? What do I want to Because it's life's, you know, it's not chasing the next high, which we have been doing for so long. It's like, I want to wake, I'm waking up now healthy. I want to go play around the golf. What do, go see a movie. But like, you know, what do I want to do? What do I enjoy doing rather than chasing that high? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, and just like my addiction, my recovery was like clockwork. It was like once I understood a concept or a path was pointed out to me and I walked down, I knew when it was the end of the path. The second that happened, I was on something else. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, whether it be a teacher, whether it be a certain religion or philosophy or or a, or a 12-step fellowship. You know, I went to, you know, started out in AA, then went to NA, and then went to the ACOA, which is built children of alcoholics, and never really got too involved with that fellowship, but I did go through the Yellow Book with a sponsor, um, which is their, their 12-step work. Um, and uh, and then, you know, I dipped my toe into smart, smart recovery, did some Dharma recovery stuff, and... Um, some twelve step yoga stuff. Um, just kind of like open my uh, myself to all these different pathways, and then a bunch of other like holistic approaches that aren't really recovery related, mm-hmm. but adopted the same type of recovery principles to live a healthy, balanced, you know, purpose during life. Yeah, it's all the same stuff um, when you get down to it. And uh, so I did that, and um, just kind of surrendered. To the fact that I had no idea what was going on and there was a bunch of information out there um, 
that I didn't have access to before that could help me figure all this stuff out and uh, just like kind of surrender to it and a bunch of, and a bunch of good stuff started yeah, happening. Yeah. You know, Life like, seems like a lot does, easier. Yeah, it does for everybody that does that, you know. It's like, yeah. You know, and um, yeah, so I started working in treatment when I had like nine months, ten, nine, ten, eleven months sober and uh, quickly started to realize that this it was something that I wanted to stick with and um, and I was very lucky to have you know, I remember there's a girl in my home group that, uh, cause I, I didn't want to go, I didn't want to like do the schooling part from, cause I just hate school. Yeah. Didn't want to, so uh, the treatment center that I was working at, at this point I had, I was like a case manager, like I was like the director of client services. I'd been there for a year and a half, two years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I needed to do, I wanted to be a counselor, but I didn't want to go back to college. Anymore. So I needed to get like my certified addiction counselor accreditation in the state of Florida. To do that, you had to, you know, you had to have a bunch of classroom, you know, hours, uh, curriculum hours, and then you had supervision hours, and it was like a three-year process. And um, you know, I'd already done a lot of the supervision hours and and, and work-related hours in the treatment center that I worked at, so I had to do all the curriculum and the testing and all that stuff. And I was just dragging my feet. And um, this has been a, a, a pretty recurring theme throughout my recovery. Mm-hmm. And uh, dragging my feet on something that, that I knew I needed to do. And, uh, and a woman named Sammy from my home group, who was like really passionate and like knew, knew that I wanted to do this. She literally got in my car one day after our home group and was like, come on, let's go to your apartment. And, uh, we drive over there and she flips open my laptop and says, give me your credit card. And she signs me up for school. I mean, sometimes you need like, people to just do that. Yeah, yeah. You're like, you're playing the winner. And who knows, I, never, I might have never even done it. And you know, yeah. the next thing you know, she's like, you're, you know, first class starts on Wednesday. It's like, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and I needed that push, you know, I needed it. And, and I, you know, I've had several people do that. For me, oh, you know, been so lucky to have so many good friends. That's so much trouble with twos. I mean, at the, in the back of your head, you're like, what, you know, the failure, something that oh, yeah. has always played out, and you're like, well, what, you know, or I'm not good enough. And yeah. Oh, yeah. You know you are, but it's still that in the back of your head. Yeah. Something I struggle with as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I stayed down, I stayed down in South Florida and worked in treatment for a while. You know, I got my certification, became a counselor and, uh, and worked in the treatment center down there. And during that time, uh, this was really cool. My, my mom called me up one day and she had recently gone through a divorce with her second husband and my stepdad. And, and she was like, I can't stop drinking. And uh, I had about two years sober at this point. And she was like, well, what should I do? And, uh, and I told her, I, I got her on a plane. She came down to Florida. That, at that time, like, my best friend in recovery was a psychiatrist. And, and she stayed at my house and, you know, treated her and detoxed her. And she stayed with me for about a month. and was like going to my home group with me every day. And, and she had been in recovery in the past. Um, mm-hmm. She had, you know, I, I remember watching, I watched her pick up the, I was high when, 
I watched him pick up a, a one-year chip in AA when I was like 15 at uh, church. And, um, but she had been in and out. And, um, but that was super cool to be able to share my recovery with her. Yeah. And, uh, and the fact that she had enough faith in my recovery and trust out to say, hey, you know, I need help. Um, and, and she's been in recovery ever since. It's been really cool. That's awesome. Share that with her. We, you know, we've gone to meetings together and talked about sponsorship. And, yeah. And it, it shared books and stories. It's been really neat. It's strengthened our relationship. But, um, yeah, so I um, I continued to work in, in treatment for a while, and um, and then you know decided that it was time to kind of branch out on my own, and um, and I started a, a private practice in 2017 down in Florida called Sonic Counseling and pretty much it was just working on my own. Um, I started working out of my buddy's office that was a psychiatrist and I was doing groups at different treatment centers mm-hmm. and because of my, like, you know, my studies around meditation and philosophy and all the different 12-step stuff, um, you know, I had a, a, a kind of more evolved approach to the whole 12-step thing. Like, I was pretty good at articulating it without the dogma. And, like, yeah. I made it made, make sense to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I, I saw a lot of people struggling with, like, admitting that they were an alcoholic or an addict or, you know, um, a whole lot of struggle around the God thing. And, uh, but I saw that there was so much more value in steps that people weren't getting because of those two things yep. being major barriers so I kind of made it a real obsession of mine to figure out ways to reach people around those barriers and remove them or try to articulate this in a way where people didn't get caught up um, and I did a lot of groups around that stuff to hopefully help people uh, engage um, with more of the recovery stuff yeah um but yeah, man. Um, it's, I mean, they. A lot of people sometimes don't see the recovery. They don't make it to the recovery because of those two. Yeah. They get hung up and they're like, "Well, this yeah, isn't yeah, for this me. Isn't or I can't work. I can't and, surrender." Yeah, and it's to to me, it's not even. You know, those are not non-starters. I mean, the one of the things that I've that I've found to be true through my practices and my recovery is like. Just plain and simple, like operating by those spiritual principles is gonna get you the best outcome in any scenario. Mm-hmm. Always. Hundred percent of the time. Yeah. You know? And just knowing that there's a better life out there yeah. than, than I mean, having to use something to numb your pain and escape and Yeah. Yeah, but it's like you know, I, I, Every single time that I've approached any kind of problem in my life and I've applied the recovery principle to it, it's always worked out. And it may not it may not seem like it's working out in the beginning because it's hard and it's uncomfortable and it's you know, you gotta set some boundaries sometimes or you gotta have faith or you know, you gotta say some stuff that you don't wanna say or be vulnerable. Yeah, it may be uncomfortable, but that's gonna save you from a ton of pain. Yep, in the long run, yep. In the, in the long run. And it almost like, it, it almost comes down to like, you know, my understanding of faith 
today, it's like I have a hundred percent like like unshakable faith in the fact that if I operate by those spiritual principles mm-hmm. in every aspect of my life, the best possible things always going to happen. A hundred percent of the time, for me and everybody that has to do with that possible situation. Yeah, you know, um, and I and I know that to be true. Like it, 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 it's always been true. It always will be true. Yeah. You know, um, and that's kind of what I tell guys. Like, look, if you don't have, you know, when we're talking about the God thing, or you just gotta have faith. I was like, you don't just gotta have faith. Just try this stuff out first. Mm-hmm. Try, try, try this and see what happens. Yep. And see if, see if the best outcome happens, or see if good stuff starts happening. Yeah. You know, and you'll learn really quickly that you know, things start working out when you when you operate from that space. Um, they just have never been there and don't... Yeah. And trust is a big issue or a big thing and issue and uh, once you turn that over and start seeing working, then you're like, okay, yeah. I'm going to trust the process. Yeah. And it's so hard to do that. It is. Especially if we're like... You know, people who have experienced childhood trauma or they've never been in a relationship that's been trustworthy. It's yeah. very, very difficult um, for somebody to trust the process like that. And that's why, like, I've, I've always kind of been, I don't know, I kind of I figured this out, or didn't figure this out, but I, I understood this when I probably. And I had about five years sober. I, I started asking people in recovery that I like really respected. I felt like kind of walk the walk, and um, they really like thrived in recovery and turned mm-hmm. their life into like something really special. And I asked, I, I kind of made this a little like pseudo research project of mine to like go around and ask all these people like, what's the one if you could, what's the one thing that like really made the biggest difference in your recovery. And almost all of them, it came back to a person. You know? And a lot of them said God, a lot of them, you know, a lot of you know, but like there was always a person that kind of bridged that gap. There's somebody that gave them a hug or they had a conversation with and kind of like brought them to the Lord or like showed up in a right place at the right time but if they didn't if they weren't there none of it would have happened just like for you with the guy at the door yeah that I mean but I mean there's been I mean, countless, yeah. countless people in mind but like I mean even like you know I've heard stories of guys say they walked into an AA meeting like you know ready to kill themselves with plans to kill themselves like when they leave and like some dude just happens to like say oh hey man they come here for a second like gives him a big old hug and he felt that love that he yeah. had felt and says hey man I'll see you tomorrow like coming back tomorrow and that saves their life and he doesn't even know that dude's name and probably might never see him again but that guy's like he wants me back here tomorrow exactly you know and, and that's where the trust starts and it's like you know if you people say that you'll hear people say that recovery doesn't work through osmosis and that is absolutely not true like you, you put yourself in a room every day with a bunch of people that have recovery. Like 
that stuff is gonna work. it's gonna rub off on you mm-hmm. you know and, and and the first thing that's gonna happen is you're gonna start trusting it because you're gonna start to believe that these people were used to be where you were yeah you know and and now they found a way out not only found a way out they found a healthy way and way yeah, to live and, and enjoy incredible life incredible lives and, and all they want to do is share it with you and and if you just show up and you're around not long enough the trust that you never had as a kid or you know you most a lot of people never have a healthy relationship with anybody their whole life correct you know and and that's because most of the people that you know, guys like us, a lot of them aren't operating by spiritual principles a lot of the time. A lot yeah. of them don't have recovery in their life. Um, and if you're in that environment long enough, like... It's going to rub off. Yeah, you're going to start to trust. You're going to start to have faith. That, like, hey, they might be doing something that, that, that works. That Let me try. Might, might work <laughs> for me, too, you know? Yeah. Um... But yeah, man, my recovery has just been like blessing after blessing uh-huh. after blessing after blessing. And um, that's what, you know, you're doing with your uh, counseling um, and then through champagne problems. And, yeah, that's been really fun. Um, our podcast, uh, thanks to Robbie Shaw, um, you know, he put this thing together and I've been lucky enough to kind of ride, ride the wave and We've had some awesome guests on, and the counseling practice continues to grow, and I've been able to really get involved with a lot of cool stuff in the Charlotte community, and heavily involved with Emerald School of Excellence, the yeah. recovery high school here. I was there this morning. Um, it's literally the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I met one of your students at the mission he came to serve with his parents and his school and talked to him. Yeah. I'd never heard of a school like that yeah. until, you know, recent. Yeah. And it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, there's several kids there that, these kids are 18, they're like coming up on three years sober. And they're like, more, they're healthier. They have more like, like insight and emotional intelligence than I did like when I was 32. Yeah, it's like, and, and it had been sober for, I mean, it's just insane to me. I mean, these kids being introduced to the recovery process at 14 or 15 years old and then starting to apply it. Because their bodies are still developing. I mean, so they're, it's, they're, still, they're light years ahead of their peers. They correct. don't have issues. Yep. Um, they're working through their trauma. Their families are healing generations of trauma. Their parents are getting sober. Yep. Um, I mean, it's just, it, it's incredible. We need more than just one school. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, all schools need to operate. Of course, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. So it, that's been really cool to be a part of that. And, um, How can um, listeners um, reach out, you know, if they need, because I know a lot of people, therapy, counseling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Therapy, so, yeah. I mean, it, for me personally, you can just go to soniccounseling.com um, and all our information's on there. I have a couple of a few other therapists that work in my practice. Um, and we're also like, uh, I try to open source my like network resources. Like I'll talk to anybody, like even if we're not a good fit, you know, we'll make sure that we find you what you need. Um, I mean, 
I'm freaking direct cell, like the, the number on the thing is my direct cell line, like call me, I'll, I'll help you find what you need. And that goes for, you know, I mean, we do individual counseling, we do interventions, um, lots of family coaching, um, but sometimes we're not the right fit. We don't take insurance, but I, you know, have a lot of, you know, friends that, in the community that do the, the practices that do, and I can point in the right direction and help people find what they need. There it is. A lot of people have asked me, and I try and, you know, um, mention ones that I've used or people use. And, yeah. You know, I mean, that's such a hard, it's a hard thing. You got to be really careful um, because now, you know, all these. Uh, I don't want to put a bad taste in people's mouths, but you got to be real careful, you know, um, especially on the addiction treatment side. It's been kind of siloed out of the whole healthcare system. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of bad actors and a lot of shady marketing tactics. And, um, you know, if you don't know how to navigate that space, you can really end up in a, in a horrible situation for you or, or a loved one. Um, and I've, I was in a, yeah, I think we talked about it, but I was in a program that was kind of shady. Yeah, I mean, and it's, and it's, it's more of a, it seemed like it was more of a money scam. And yeah, and it's hard, it's, 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 it's really disheartening because, you know, families are, you know, people are in extremely vulnerable places and they've been through tons of trauma. And then they get to a point where they're willing to reach out for help. And that's a hard place to get to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, it, and it's usually a very small window of opportunity. And for people that don't know anything about this or haven't been in the system and they, and they do that and then they get, they get shysted or they get you know lied to, um, or they end up in a place that's not appropriate for them or the you know, place doesn't help or they show you a bunch of crap that they don't deliver. Um, or just, you know, one of the biggest problems is that people don't get, you know, good third party assessments before they get referred to treatment. It's right. like they just call some number that they find on Google and right. some guy says, oh, you know, if you don't get your kid here tomorrow, he's going to die. Yep. Um, you need to take out a second mortgage to pay for this treatment program. Because they're not cheap. Because our outcomes are uh, uh, 100% success. And people hear that and they're like, oh, okay, we got to get them there. And it just, it, it, it's it's really disheartening, um, you know, some of the things that are happening. So, you know, definitely if you're out there and you're looking for help, um, call a trusted professional in our community first to mm-hmm. have them make make a, an appropriate referral or you know do an assessment first and make sure that you get referred by a reputable um, provider don't go on Google go to your primary care doctor or go to somebody that's you know you got to be careful with that too go yeah. to somebody that that's, that's in recovery or been helped because they may have a totally different circumstance than you and they say oh well this worked for me so it must work for you and that's you not know, the case you know um it's but, tricky to navigate. Yeah. So if you need someone, reach out to Patrick. Yeah. Here and he'll help you, place you. Yeah, I can, help, fit. I can help you figure it out. Um, 
Last question before I ask every guest, just advice for our listeners, something that's helped you um, in life, recovery, mental health. Um, when you say that, the only thing that comes up is like the most important spiritual principle I always think is humility because like nobody knows what the heck's going on. Nope. You know? And, and, and like we're just out here freaking you know blindfolded throwing darts while trying to figure it out everybody's wounded everybody's hurt everybody's in need of grace and forgiveness and and love and um you know if you can move into any situation knowing that you don't know you know, that opens you up to a world of possibilities. Um, and for me, anytime I've approached that, you know, combined with my own faith and, um, and having faith that I have a bunch of good people that care about me around me, that have my best interest at heart, I always find, you know, the right path and the right answer or input in, in the right situation without really having to do much. Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, just knowing that I don't know and, and having the ability to ask for help when I need it um, and just trusting you know, that, that I'm going to get what I need when I need it. Um, but ask for help. Yeah. That, that's the hard stuff. It is. That's Once what you can do that, yeah, a lot of stuff starts getting easier. Yeah. So once you speak on it, 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 it doesn't hold a as powerful yeah. grip on you. Yeah. And when it comes to addiction, like like I tell people, like our society is the disease of addiction right now. Like we're all addicted to something. That's what I tell the kids. It doesn't have to be alcohol, drinks, no, social media, it's every score yeah. even. It doesn't. It, it's uh, you know, it, we all we're, we all got problems. Yeah. You know, so then. Even the substance piece, like, I mean, overdose is now the leading cause of death for people under the age of 50 in the United States. Like, it is everywhere, mm-hmm. you know. And I see it at work. You see it. Yeah, it's, I see it all the time. It's, uh, there's so many people suffering in silence and families that don't know what to do and are ashamed that, that their kids or their friends, like, you know, if they're going to lose their job or they're going to get kicked out of school or they're, you know, you know, not going to be valid. It's like, it's all worthless if you're dead. Correct. You know, and, 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 and if, you know, one of the things now, it's like, oh, they're just smoking a little weed or, oh, they're just drinking a little bit. Yeah, that's what I was going to do, you know. It's, and I tell the kids too, you make a decision today at middle school, high school, whatever age, it's a very tough decision at that point, but it gets easier and easier each time before you know it. You you look back and like, when did, how did this start? One bad move changed the trajectory of your entire life. You don't think about that at 10 to, you know, whatever age. And that's why it's important for guys like us to tell our stories. Uh, and have these kids hear it. Um, and I share my pictures like here. Yeah. Here's what you know. My addiction yeah. took me to, and I never thought I'd be here. And yeah. You know, look look at this picture. Exactly. And then yeah. to see me sitting yeah. there. Yeah. And, 
choose to do this, you know? No. Not something that we had to both went to private school. We had bland. Yes. <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't want to be an addict. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be in and out of jail and hospitals yeah. and treatments. No. Yeah, it's a fun no. life. Wouldn't part of the plan. No. Patrick, thank you for, you know, your vulnerability and sitting down, sharing your yeah. story, and just what you do here in the community. Uh, you know, so thank yeah, you. Yeah, you too, man. Yeah. Well, thanks for, for having the show and for giving people a platform to tell their stories, man. You're making a difference. Dude. Yeah. I appreciate you know, it's, it. It's important, you know, because everyone's got a story. We all got struggles and we're not alone, but... You know, Shout out to our boy Hazy. Yep, yep, yep. I think he was episode early 40s and then William Burleson was on Champagne nice. Problems yeah, and yeah. he was I think episode 40 for us but oh, yeah um, you know it's good his book I think is coming out soon yeah, yeah. Done. I know you're done yeah so um, yeah so thank you yeah thanks for having me yeah it's been awesome yeah. uh, thank you all for tuning in this week episode 66 to wrap the whole show if you want to connect if you want to come on, share your story, uh, please reach out to uh, the rabbit hole show 21 at gmail.com, social media, text. Um, and then just go subscribe, follow, because as I always say, we all have a story. We all have struggles, and the good news is we're not alone. So just hearing someone else's story um, can make a big impact. So thank y'all, love y'all, and stay tuned for next week.